My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and I will see you there. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a wealth manager and principal at Innovative Advisory Group. He has over 20 years of experience managing money for high net worth individuals and their families. He has successfully navigated his clients through two bull markets and three bear markets using his risk management first philosophy. And he is probably the only wealth manager you will ever meet who uses this advanced money management technique. He is also the host of the Money Tree podcast, one of the longest running investing podcasts in the world. And I am very honored to be able to say that I have been on a guest on his show back in July, and it was a fantastic experience. Please welcome to the show, Kirk Chisholm. Kirk. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks for having me on, Mikkel. And, I, and I, I think you failed to mention you're one of my favorite guests on my show. <laughs> wow. Why, thank you very much. I was interested because, I mean, your show, I mean, it's kind of a staple in the personal finance investing space. And then I came on to the show and we talked about not really personal finance, not really um, investing stuff. We just talked about lifestyle and what that looks like outside of you know Canada and the United States and how someone might do that. So I wasn't sure how that would go over, but it seemed to be good. Yeah, the listeners really enjoyed it. I think you know what I really enjoyed about the podcast is that we get to go in all different areas. And you know, so personal finance and investing is huge. So what I think a lot of the a lot of podcasts will talk about is, you know, what's an IRA or you know, what's a stock and 
you know, that, that has limitations, but what we really enjoy doing is, is really going outside the box and causing people to think, uh, which is one of the reasons why I brought you on the show, because you have such an interesting perspective on life and travel and, you know, your expat community. It's not something that people normally talk about in, you know, in, um, let's just say normal people, right? People that are kind of wearing their, you know, wearing their red hat or their blue hat for when it comes to elections. These are people who are kind of more outside the box thinkers. And I really like that. So when I bring on guests that are of your line of thinking, usually get very polarized opinions. Like I brought on Doug Casey at one point and I got so much hate mail from the listeners about <laughs> why are you bringing on somebody who's talking this trash? And I had to respond. I said, it's actually to get you to think outside your box. Like, I don't care if you agree with them or not. The point is like, it causes you to think like most people have what I call a fixed mindset is they have a certain view on the world that fits in this little box. And we all have this, we, we call it reality, right? It's our own version of reality. And what people don't realize is there are there is no singular version of reality. There are many versions. So Mikhail, your version's a little bit different from mine, is different from the listeners. It's gonna be similar, but you know, if let's just say hypothetically, you're you know, a Republican, I'm a Democrat, you know, your view on what's going on is very different from mine. We see the same course of events, but we have a different lens on the world. And that's one of the problems with um, what's going on in politics right now is people look at the same facts and they come up with two separate conclusions. And so one of the reasons we bring on people of, of different perspectives is to help people open their mind to the fact that there is so much opportunity. There's so many options out there for people to pursue that it doesn't have to fit in something that someone gives you, you know, take a step back and take a look at it and say, hey, um, maybe I can do this differently. Well, I agree with that 100% because everything that we know and understand, it goes through our own filters first before anything else. And always the way that I try to do interviews and with my podcast and writing and books and all of these types of things is at the end of the day, I don't want people to go, hey, Mikkel, he's an okay guy. No, I either want you to absolutely hate my guts or love me. Like, I don't want that like lukewarm, like, yeah, he's okay. Like, it's, it's all right. It's like, no, I want to get a strong reaction out of people um, because I'm not trying to do business with the entire world. I'm trying to find the few people who understand what I'm talking about, maybe try to inspire some people, help some people and help the people who are really interested. Yeah, I think what you were talking about is what we call the warm bath, right? It's, uh, you, you can't, you, most people, uh, you're not going to get anybody's attention. I mean, when it comes to marketing, you're not going to get anybody's attention if you're trying to be everything to everybody. Because if you're being everything to everybody, you're nothing to anybody, is kind of what I say. So, you know, we have we have a guy here, uh, an advisor, Tim, who you know, Tim Pachote, who's a libertarian and is focused on crypto, and that's his niche. A lot of people hate him. Like he's just one of those polarizing figures, but yet he's one of the smartest people I know. Like he's, I think Tim's hilarious. Yeah, he, he's so funny, but he's really bright. But if you don't agree with him, you're going to think he's a tinfoil hat boob. You know, like I hear this from people like, get that guy off there. Like, no, like he's, you're not listening to what he's saying. He's a very smart individual. And if you're not aligned with that way of thinking, you're going to immediately tune him out and just say, oh, he's, he's a crank. But you know, 
like, I mean, you, you go through history and that's what people have said about really bright people. They said, oh, that guy's a kook or whatever. And, you know, some of the best scientists have much, you know, many years later have, have been, you know, have, have come out. It has come out that they've been right. And it's only after the fact because people were closed minded at the time. So that's why you and I do these things to really get people to open their minds, because I think it's really important. Well, and very last point on this. And this fits so perfectly, exactly who you just said, Doug Casey. Doug Casey, I've had him on my show. I've talked to him. I've gone out for dinner with him. I've smoked cigars with him. He's he's hilarious. But I mean, he's so extreme so many times that I mean, I think that a lot of what he says is so extreme because he doesn't actually expect people to go as far as he's gone or as far forward as that. But even if he can get them to move a little bit, you know, it's in the right direction because you need a lot to shift people's thinking and to have th people view things from a different uh, viewpoint. I mean, you can't just be a little bit uh, in one direction or another. You really have to go to the extreme to to help people to understand these things. So he does a great job of that for sure. Yeah, and I agree. And and I think the, uh, you know, the, the polarization of that is, is a big part of it. Uh, they call uh, in... Well, people in media, they call it being provocative, right? Like he's being provocative to help you think about it. And and I think it's great. I mean, who else are you ever going to meet who's going to try to take a country public? I mean, that's just yeah. <laughs> uh, his ideas are hilarious. I mean, they're sound. They're they're like, you know, academically sound. You just look at me like, why would you even try to do that? But it's just to me, I just he's, he's one of my favorites. I just love talking to him. And I'm glad I had a chance to interview him on the show. But um I remember on a private conversation with him, he was telling me that his hobby these days, because he can't play polo and stuff anymore, his hobbies is to go to third world despot <laughs> countries and meet the, the, the dictator and try to convert them to anarchism and libertarianism and to do away with this and, and rebuild their entire country. And he has like entire business plans set up and meets with all the ministers and he tries to like change the whole country's governance to be like in this style. I was like, that's hilarious. So he was going to Toga the one day, the one time. And I was like, I was like, let me know when you go to Toga. I want to, Tongo, Tongo, Togo, Togo, Togo in Africa. I was like, let me know when you go. Cause I'm coming along. This is hilarious. I want, I want to be a part of this. <laughs> Anyways, Kirk, I want to jump in too. Asset management, wealth management, resilience. I got like a list of things that I want to discuss with you today. But before we get going on those, maybe give us a little bit of a backstory. How did you start working in, in this whole industry, in this financial services, wealth management uh, space? Yeah, it's actually an interesting story. So when I was in college, it was during the tech boom in the late nineties. And I got involved in the space because I thought, wow, this is really cool. I get to, I get to meet people. I get to make some good money and, you know, obviously do something that really is fascinating because the market changes every day. There's, you look at the smartest investors in the world and they'll all tell you the same thing that they learn something new every day. And that's actually one of the reasons I love it is because I get to learn all this new stuff. Now, you know, I got started in the market. The market pretty much went down for three years straight. I got started in December of 99. So I got all of the downside, none of the upside. Um, Your fault? Uh, yeah, it could have been, could have been. <laughs> <laughs> I top ticked the market, as they say. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, one of the interesting things was I had to learn risk management really quickly because I had, you know, the market kept going down. It wasn't like the 90s where you could, you could throw darts at a board, which some people did, and make money. Uh, 
you know, we had to literally learn risk management firsthand because people give you money and you have to try not to lose it for three years. Um, and I got pretty good at it, but I still, people were still losing money because this whole attitude of buy and hold, which is what most of Wall Street uses is, I call it buy and forget, um, which is, you know, you buy and you just hold on for the long term. Well, what's the long term mean? Is, is that 10 years? Is that 20 years? Is that 50 years? And, you know, you could, Wall Street has a lot of things we call half truths, where they come out and they'll tell you half the truth. Like, oh, if you missed the, the, the biggest six or 10 performing days in the market, you would have missed out on 10% annualized returns. Well, what they don't tell you is if you missed the worst 10 days, you also would have had a similar performance. And the best 10 days are also subsequently after the 10 worst days. So you're, if you just miss it all together, you're really, you're really- Net zero. You're net zero, but you're so far ahead of the game because you're not losing. Um, True. And so I really got frustrated after the, the early 2000s because there really wasn't a good way to manage risk. No one else was talking about it. And so subsequently, um, we came into the uh, 2007 and, you know, I saw that the real estate market was going nuts and I was like, there's something bad's going to happen. We started doing research. We realized definitely something bad's going to happen. We just didn't know when. So we got out of the market completely, went entirely to cash. And um, it was a scary and a great thing to do. Uh, it was scary because the market could have kept going up. I mean, it could have gone up another 50%. I mean, who, you know, no one knows the future. But what we found out was um, it worked and it was great. Um, and then the stock market crashed. And then, you know, that was great. But what I realized is it's not a perfect solution. And so I went back to the drawing board and we came up with a another way, which we're using now, which worked really well in March, which was basically to make money when the market goes up and not lose when it goes down. And I think what a lot of people miss is they say, well, you need to be in the market to make money. I would actually argue against that. I would say that risk management is, um, is it's not about not losing money, although that is the goal. Um, risk management is about identifying all of the risks, mitigating as many as you can, and being comfortable with what is left over. That is the essence of risk management because you can't, what I think is funny about Wall Street is everyone thinks they know the future, right? Or they ask you, oh, what's the market going to do? What's the market going to do when the election happens? Who's going to win? Is, is Apple going to make its earnings? Like that's what everybody asks you. And you know what? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm going to be the one to break this, break the spell here. I'm the wizard behind the curtain. I don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen the next day. I have my theories. But no one knows, that's the big secret. No one has any idea what's gonna happen because none of us can predict the future. Now, there are probabilities of what's gonna happen, right? And you can, you can look at that and you can manage the different scenarios, but you can't truly know. And I think what's interesting is that all of Wall Street is built on the idea that we're supposed to know the future. And they wonder why people don't get ahead in Wall Street and why they don't beat the index. It's because they're trying to predict the future, which nobody can do. So what we've looked at is we look at um, what I call scenario-based thinking versus outcome-based thinking. Outcome-based thinking is trying to predict the future. Scenario-based thinking is looking at the different possible scenarios and managing the risk for each one of them and being comfortable with what's left over. 
So do you manage all of them at once or do you just try to like put out a bunch of different ideas and then and then guess or see the future on which one is more likely to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way that we look at it, and it depends on the time frame. I'll just tell you that. So uh, as an okay. example, so earlier in this year, in February, um, we we saw that the market could very well go up more as it would have if COVID didn't happen. Um, but yet we also knew that it was way overpriced. So we had a strategy that allowed us to make money when the market went up and not lose when it went down. So I think the most we lost was maybe like, I don't know, three, three and a half percent or something like that when the market crashed. Um, I didn't know it was going to crash. No one did. I mean, some people might have suspected, but I didn't need to know because I had the risk managed if that were to happen. And I suspected something was going to happen this year because of the election, you know, put on your tinfoil hat and guess that something coincidentally is going to happen during election year. But I think that regardless, it's, it felt like something was going to happen. It just so happened in the COVID thing. Um, so what typically we do in a situation like that, that was a, almost a binary outcome. It's either going to go up or it's going to go down. Um, there are times where the market will just go sideways. It'll just, uh, like it was uh, 2018, I think it was. It was, it was a, a lot of sideways movement throughout that period. And those happen too. And you can't predict those either. So that is also a risk in, in any sort of planning strategy because making no money is basically you're wasting a year's worth of time. And time value is more important than money because you, you can't get time back. You can make money back, but not time. So... When we're looking at different scenarios, we we look at it from different perspectives. We look at the overall risk, and we also break the portfolio into different uh, sleeves, as we call it. So there's different segments. So if we need to generate income, that might be one segment. If we're trying to protect against a sideways moving market, there's another segment. If we're trying to protect against a down market. So we have we don't allocate in the traditional way that most people do. Most people will say, oh, you need large cap, mid cap, small cap, bonds, international, you know, you do this whole, yeah, you mix it all up. markets or, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. 10% make- of this, 20% of that, and it's like a cake or a recipe or something. Yeah. And, and everyone has their own theory as to what the right allocation is. And quite frankly, in the last few years, that's tossed it all in its head because the old strategies of the 60-40 don't really work anymore because bonds are not effective in the way that they used to be. So now you have to rethink the allocation. And and most people that I've seen are 90% equities. Well, if you're 65 years old, that's beyond dangerous, but there are people out there recommending it. And I think it's, I mean, it should be, these people should be thrown in jail for that because if you're 65 and all your money is going to disappear because the market crashes, that's, you know, that's, it's so far beyond, I mean, that's criminal. But so we've looked at, um, we've looked at portfolios differently than other people are looking at them. So we're not looking at it from the traditional asset allocation bucket. We're looking at it from how do you manage risk over different um, strategies, uh, which is a very different way to look at it. It's a lot more tactical than it is um, just the, the buy and hope, you know, if, if you understand. So. Mm-hmm. so you don't focus too much on asset allocation. So Talk us through some of the strategies that you do use that have been working better for you. So asset allocation is a part of it, just not in the traditional way that most people okay. are are understanding it. So for example, um, most people look at it from asset class. So they, they asset allocate by asset class. We do it by strategy. 
So we look at, for an example, let's say um, one thing that might happen is the market could go up from here. That's one potential scenario. Another scenario is the market could go down from here. Another scenario is it goes sideways. I'm simplifying this quite a bit, but right. So those are the three scenarios. Um, I don't know which one is going to happen or when it's going to happen. Nobody does. If they did, then they wouldn't use the asset allocation bucket that they're using. The way, the reason that they use asset allocation, and this is another secret, I'm spilling all my secrets here, not mine, but Wall Street's. Um, <laughs> the reason that they do it is because it makes it idiot proof. I mean, really the reason that they came up with the asset allocation strategy was actually was an academic theory that was actually a failed academic theory, but people on Wall Street saw it and they said, oh, this is a great way to sell more mutual funds. So make it easy. I can sell all sorts of things. So it's not wrong. <clears throat> it's just a half truth because it doesn't fully give you what you need. And actually it did work in the 80s and 90s. It worked rather well. It hasn't worked since um, because what's happened is the market has fundamentally changed, yet people's strategy around it hasn't changed. And that's the problem. People are looking at the market as if it's a fixed thing that hasn't changed in decades, but yet it changes all the time. So rather than picking a bunch of asset classes, we pick a bunch of strategies. So, and this is obviously an example. Um, so let's say the market's going to go up. We'd have a strategy that's going to appeal to that type of market. If the market's going to go down, we have a strategy or an overlay um, to manage risk if that were to sell off. And then if the market goes sideways, we're able to you know, make some money while it, while it treads water. So really, we're not trying to you know, beat the market every single year. Um, the way you know, I enjoy doing math problems, and you'd think Wall Street was, but I think you'd be surprised to find out that it's really easy to beat the index. As long as you don't lose big when the index drops, you actually beat it over the long term by a large margin. And you can underperform every single year. And as long as you don't lose big in the down at the downdrafts, you actually can still beat the index quite handedly. So I look at that and say, why not just not lose big? Because that's when wealth is destroyed is when the market goes down 50% or 35% or whatever happens. You just don't lose big and you're going to beat it easily. I don't need to buy the FANG stocks to outperform the market every year. I mean, I think that's a fool's errand. You're, you might as well just go to the casino and just throw the dice. Um, not saying that that's a bad strategy. It's just not the strategy I have. I'm not the kind of guy you call when you're trying to find the hot button, the shiny object, you want to buy the next, you know, fang stock. I'm the guy you call to preserve your wealth and grow it consistently. Um, I don't take huge risks. I take calculated risks, ones that I know the outcome, the worst case scenarios of, and, you know, our clients are comfortable with that. So we do well, and it's, it's about preserving wealth. Because once you get to a certain point, Mikkel, and I don't know if you're there, but I imagine you might be, like once you get to a certain point where you don't need more wealth, um, you, you have, quote unquote, enough, um, you don't need to get 100% returns a year. You don't find 
you know, the Rockefellers, you know, well, Gates is probably a different story, but you don't look at those old wealth people, those, the, you know, those moneyed people that have had generational wealth. They're not trying to make hundred percent returns a year. They're trying to preserve their wealth over generations and grow it consistently. When you get wealthy, that's the goal. It's not to create these huge, these huge performance numbers. But when people are not quite there, they're always trying to hit home runs and grand slams. And sometimes that can bite them in the butt. Mm-hmm. And Fang stocks is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, I assume? Uh, like Facebook, tet- Amazon, Alphabet, um, Google, Netflix, and Fang M, Microsoft's in there now. Microsoft. So all the big tech companies. Yeah. Because it is interesting looking at those tech companies. And I mean, they just seem to be going crazy. But those are some of the good ones, but I look at some of the other ones like Snapchat or WeWork or these other ones that were supposed to be up and coming, and they've just absolutely gotten slaughtered. So you could go into something like that, think that you're jumping on the next big tech stock, get destroyed, and wait, wipe out your gains, which is really what we're talking about today. We will just take a quick break. Over the last couple of years of building up the Expat Money Show and Escape Artist, I have been interviewed more than 100 times on podcasts, news programs, blogs, magazines, and newspapers. Well, recently I was a guest on The Brian Nichols Show, and he was one of the best hosts I have ever met. I immediately started messaging my friends and business contacts that they needed to listen to the show right now. The show is for people who are tired of partisan politics, who are having trouble finding objective news without the media narrative, and for folks who want to expand their skills and understanding of complex issues as they learn from noted entrepreneurs, elected officials, C-level executives, economists, and more. The show has been going for nearly three years, and now with three episodes per week, there is a ton to keep you entertained and informed. Their flagship show airs on Friday mornings right after the Expat Money Show. So you can literally listen to a new episode of the Expat Money Show, then immediately listen to the Brian Nichols Show on your favorite podcasting app. Noted guests include Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Dr. Joe Jorgensen, Matt Kibbe, Brad Palumbo, Mark Lobliner, Austin Peterson, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp, and of course, me, Mikkel Thorpe, on episode 133. So what I want you to do right now is put this episode on pause and go and subscribe and turn on notifications to The Brian Nichols Show. That's B-R-I-A-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S Show. And if you go to briannicholsshow.com or if you search for Brian Nichols on your favorite podcasting app, you'll find it there. Okay, let's jump back into the episode. Yeah. And I think I said, I think I said Apple, uh, Alphabet and Amazon, actually Apple. Yeah. Apple and Amazon. So just, but yeah, I think you're right. And and I think one thing that, you know, as human beings, we have this desire to find something new and interesting and novel. And we want to ride, we want to, we want to tell our friends and family that we bought the next Apple when it was trading for pennies a share. And we want that feeling. And Unless you're in that business, it's sure luck. I mean, think about it. You know, how awesome would it have been to buy Microsoft back when they went public? But if you look back at the beginning computer companies, like, and I mean computer, I mean like the IBMs, like the uh, Commodore, like I don't, Tandy, all those companies, like out of the, the biggest companies, there was, I think out of the biggest 10 or 20, one survived. 
like your, your odds are slim to none that that's going to actually work. And right now we're in an environment where only one can survive. Are there two Amazons? No, there will never be two Amazons. Walmart's trying to do it right now and they can't because there's never going to be two Amazons because they own the space. There's not going to be two Facebooks. And you could argue there's other social medias, but we have a few now. And are there going to be more? Maybe because, you know, the younger generation tends to, as soon as the older generation gets on, they leave and go somewhere else. So, so there, there might be, and who knows with the, with all the, the tech hearings that are going on in Washington, although I think that's going to end up being a whole lot of nothing. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like you've got a lot of companies out there that are, that are basically virtual monopolies. I mean, Microsoft's an example, right? They were virtual monopoly and, you know, the government went after them, but you're not going to have multiple competitors in a lot of spaces because it's just the way that technology is at some point, you know, every, the winner gets all of the spoils and they're, I mean, look at like Intel and I mean, they've got what one, they got a handful of competitors, but I'd, it's going to be really hard to imagine there's going to be another Intel out there because they're just so large and they've got a huge market share. So, yeah, and they swallow up companies as well. If if you come out with something innovative, really your exit strategy is to get bought up by one of these companies. You don't actually expect, I, well, I don't know, but um, I, I would assume that most people are, that is their exit strategy. They're not looking to actually be a competitor to Facebook or to Amazon or anything like that. They're just hoping that someone takes notice and buys them for $4 billion, like, um, you know, Instagram or one of these other companies. Yeah. And if they don't, I mean, you take the examples, like somebody holds out for more money and let's say Facebook wants to buy you and then you hold out and they just say, you know what, we're just going to build it ourselves. <laughs> so, so we're just going to, we're, we're going to take your offer, throw it in your face and we're going to build it and put you out of business in about two years. So there's not a lot of incentive not to get bought out either, which is part of the problem. But yeah, I mean, honestly, if I was one of those people, why would you see so you're worth half a billion dollars? So you're going to wait around so you're worth two billion. What's what's a billion and a half to you? What are you going to do with that? <laughs> you're going to buy another fifty houses? <laughs> exactly. Like what? What are you going to be able to buy with two billion dollars that you couldn't buy with five hundred million? <laughs> like I mean, it, it's just so obscene amounts of money. Um, I mean, yeah. Apparently, apparently the presidency. Maybe you can buy that, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't work for Bloomberg. <laughs> no, so it didn't. It did not. <laughs> he spent what five hundred million dollars on advertising well, and didn't get any. It is so. Bloomberg, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So okay. So if you if you work more in allocation of strategies and not allocation in um, asset classes, what are some of those other strategies? Like I understand there's going to be proprietary things that you're not going to be able to discuss, but what what can you discuss and kind of give people an understanding of? Um, so yeah, it's hard because a lot of this stuff is proprietary, but the way I would say it is that, um, we are able to craft strategies based on, on the, on what we perceive as the outcome and the risks. So we're, we're able to, there's different, uh, vehicles and risk mitigation strategies that we use. Um, and what our goal is, is to define the risk and to um, more or less kind of ring fence the outcome. So it could be unlimited upside, it could be limited upside, it could be, I mean, but basically we're able to create what we think is potentially going to happen and more importantly, manage the risk of that. So it's it's having multiple strategies combined together, but it's, you know, 
what's interesting is a lot of people don't realize they think, well, if you buy a stock and it goes up, you make money. If it goes down, you lose money. And if it goes sideways, you don't make any money unless you have a dividend. There's a lot of ways that you can um, create a strategy around a, a negative or sideways market where you can make money. And it's really customized. So a lot of the clients we work with, we customize these, these situations. Um, you know, we have a lot of clients who have similar situations, but sometimes let's say we have one that's, um, let's say owns a company and like, you know, 95% of their net worth is tied up in their stock. You know, we might create a strategy to manage the risk of that stock. Um, that's not everybody who's going to be listening to this, but certainly there's ways to do that. So we, we use different vehicles to, to get into that. And it's really about, um, it's really about defining the outcome in upside and downside terms. And then would these be things like options, strategies, futures, things like this, or do you work mostly in just equities or what kind of uh, medium, or is it kind of at a, a, a basket where you combine all these different types? Uh, in some ways, it's a basket. So I'll give you some examples. Um, so we do use equities. Um, right now, we're not using bonds necessarily because you're not getting any income. So there's not really a lot of reasons to own bonds. Um, we have owned some in the past, but not at the moment, we're not. Um, we have bond-like instruments that we use because um, ideally what we're trying to do is we're trying to create income. We're big fans of income, especially passive income for our clients that they can rely on. So when we're creating income strategies, we might use equities, we might use bonds or bond-like instruments, or we might use alternatives, which I think you and I will probably get into later on in this episode. Um, but really we're looking for ways to create that income. Um, I mean, you could, I'll throw out some examples. I mean, you could use real estate, you could use, uh, you can lend money, private lending, you could do tax liens, there's a whole bunch of things you could do to create income. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the stock market. That is just one potential way to do it. You know, options are a great way to manage risk. We use them a lot to, to define the risk and we have different strategies that we use. Um, options are one of those misunderstood vehicles. They were created to manage risk. And, um, and yet people who don't understand them think they're really risky. And I would say, well, so is a penny stock. A penny stock's risky too, if you don't know what you're doing. Any investment's risky if you don't know what you're doing. But if you know what you're doing, it's, it's probably the best vehicle out there to manage risk. And I mean, the best and the brightest in the world use options to manage risk. You look at people like Warren Buffett, who he doesn't ever talks about this, but he's done this. Um, you look at the hedge fund managers, some of the some of the smart people, they use it to manage risks in their portfolios. These guys who short stocks, which is probably one of the worst things you could do as an investor. Um, you have you have guys like Jim Chanos who short stocks, and he's a genius, and he's wrong most of the time. So you know, and he'll tell you like it's not not knocking the guy. The guy's very bright, but it's a really hard thing to do. But he's not just shorting stocks and holding on. Well, you know, some of these stocks go from 100 to 500 bucks. He's managing the risk of that short. So he's using things like options so that he doesn't lose tons of money. So options have a defined purpose. So each of these assets 
have a purpose in building out a strategy. So it's a basket in a way. We're not allocating it in the way that most people do. We're we're looking at it from a um, not from an asset allocation, but from a risk allocation. So we're managing the risk of it and looking at at how to manage that risk over the portfolio. And as far as I know, we're the only firm. Um, that's really doing this because everyone just thinks of it as asset allocation and they paint it with a different brush, but they're not actually doing what's what they should be doing because no one's taught them that. It's not their fault. Just people don't teach this. I mean, I, I had to learn this in the trenches. Like they don't teach us to, this to you when you start. Well, when I got into options was probably almost 15 years ago, 10, 12, 15 years ago. And I traded options very heavily for seven or eight years. And when I first started trying to go out there and learn about it, everybody was buying options. And I looked at it and I'm reading books. I'm going, this is terrible. And I made the decision really early never to buy options. I was always selling options. Mm -hmm. Or if I was buying, it was to hedge my risk. You know, So I was doing mostly straddles and strangles and just try to keep the stock in between or close to one point. And I was always doing short term. But when you talk about income, you know, I was making thousands and thousands of dollars in in real income from selling options. And I always felt it was a very risk adverse. Like I, I felt like I was always, I always had a defined uh, amount that I could lose. And then when you, you watch it, if it hits that amount, then you get out. It's not one of these things where it blows right past your, um, your numbers and then you wake up the next day and you're down $50,000 or, you know, the market can go down 15% or 20% or 50%, but do you have a defined amount that you're going to lose? And once that's out, then you're out. Yeah. Um, no, that's, yeah, I think, I think that options are misunderstood, like you had said. Yeah. And, and, and they are confusing, right? If for most people, if they're buying a stock, you just click a button and you buy your favorite tech stock, simple. Oh, and it goes down. That's all right. I'm going to buy and hold. I'm just going to, you're going to change your, you're going to change your strategy for making money to, I'm just going to wait it out. Um, that's why I call it a buy and hope strategy. Cause when people buy into stock, what they do is they buy and they don't have an exit strategy. Their exit strategy is just more. And more is not a strategy. That's that's the buy and hope strategy. If you think I'm going to buy this stock and it's going to go to the moon, then you're deluding yourself because st- none of the stocks go to the moon. You know, they might go up a few hundred percent or a thousand percent or whatever, but there is a limit. Like they don't go up forever. So you need to have a strategy, an exit strategy in place if something bad happens. And your exit strategy might be you want to buy and hold for the next 40 years. That might be the strategy. But I can tell you that there are very few stocks that are going to be the same stock 40 years from now than they were um, they were before. I mean, take a good company like GE that's been around one of the, I think it was the longest running Dow component stock um, in there. And, you know, that company changed in the last 10 years or 12 years, I guess. Uh, they went through some really rough times after the after the housing crisis. And, you know, it was a bellwether, but now it's a different company. And, you know, if I owned it 20 years ago, I mean, people who owned it 20 years ago were, I mean, they were fanatical about that company. You don't find people who are fanatical about it anymore. Um, you know, the same thing, you look at companies like Apple or, you know, uh, Facebook or any of these FANG stocks, like people are fanatical about those companies. And that's great. I, I, I think it's wonderful for them. But, you know, companies lasting buy and hold forever is 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 a tough strategy to employ. So I think it's really important to to think about what the exit strategy is when you're buying, so that you're not surprised if the market goes down fifty percent. 
And if you want to hold on, that's great. If you don't, then you need to have a strategy that, you know, you think of a guy like George Soros, who a lot of people don't like uh, for his politics, but you're also talking about a, a, a genius investor. Like you can't take anything away from his investing acumen. And here's a guy who really understands numbers and um, it kind of comes back to the, the risk management philosophy. And, you know, if you, if you kind of run the numbers, I wrote a blog post about this a while ago. Uh, if you run the numbers for, um, for risk management, a guy like George Soros will put a cap on his losses of maybe like three or 5%. So he'll buy a stock. If it goes down five, he cuts his losses and he's like, I'm done. Um, and, you know, if it goes up, he takes his profits whenever he takes them. He, he's not a pig. He doesn't try to squeeze out every nickel of the profit. You know, he gets out in the, in the meat of the trade. So if he expects it to go from 10 to 20, he might get out at 16 or 17. Um, he's not trying to squeeze every nickel because he knows that he could equally get burned on the downside. So what a lot of people will do is they'll buy a stock. It'll go down 20% and they'll just say, or they'll say their stop loss is 20%. It'll go down 21 and they're thinking, eh, you know, it's right at the limit. Let's give it a little bit more room just a little bit more. And there it goes, 22, 23. Um, and then they have a hard time getting out because now they're down 23. Well, I, I got to make it back. I can't just lose money. I got to make it back down 30%, 40%. Well, now I can't sell because that would just be silly. So you get into this psychological game and I, I'm, I'm running through this because I've been through this. And one of the reasons I use options is because I've been through this. It, it's It's really hard to to create a stop position and say, I'm going to stop out at this price because it gets that price and you're like, ooh, ooh, it's it, it can bounce from here. It's going to go back up. And you play these psychological games with yourself. And if you don't understand your own investor psychology, you really end up losing a lot of money. You have a guy like George Soros that says, you know, um, let your winners run and cut your losers quick. And that I think is a good successful strategy. So you might lose so if you think about this, like think about the numbers, let's say you're, let's say I tell you I've got an investment uh, strategy. You lose money 75% of the time. Do you think that's a winning strategy? I think I don't have enough information, but I would say it probably not. <laughs> well, yes. So your first answer is correct. You don't have enough information. So people look at it like I see these advertisements. Oh, it's a 90% win rate. Maybe, but how much do you lose when you lose? So the, the question you have to ask yourself is not the percentage of winners. It's how much do you lose in your losses and how much do you win in your winners? So if you have a 75% loss rate, but you know, and you're and the losses are, let's say they go to zero, but your winners are like 500% wins, then you might be making money, right? And, and some people who trade options for a living might have that. Um, it's not what we do, but I know some people who have very volatile swings and, you know, but it's, it's, and actually we interviewed a guy in the show, um, Vic Speriendo is a legendary options trader back in the day. Uh, you know, he had, I think it was like 20 years with no losing years. And it was like average was like something crazy, like 20 or 30% a year, like crazy numbers. But here's a guy who was trading options for a living and didn't have any losing years because he knew how to manage his risk, like mm -hmm. what you were talking about. Well, and a side note for people, when we talk or when Kirk says 75% lose rate, 80% lose rate, if you're buying options, those are the numbers. Like you can, exp if, if you get one out of five, which is a winner, I mean, that's quite good, actually. 
for buying options, not for selling. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah. selling is a different thing, and and I think along the lines with you, I mean, buying options. Uh, typically, I think it's a three to one, three one percent uh, out of three that you're going to lose if you're buying options. Uh, I'm sorry, that you're going to win if you're buying options, and two out of three chances you're going to win if you sell. So to your point, you were saying earlier, like in the earlier part of this decade, we were we were doing a lot what you were doing. We were selling options because the premiums were fat. You were making lots of money. You didn't have to take as much risk. And we weren't shooting for home runs or shooting for singles and doubles, but you were able to make them. And then at one point a few years ago, you weren't making any money on it because the option premiums just went down the tubes. And that's- They evaporated. Yeah. yeah. So we switched our strategy around and we started buying options and we did really well because it was so cheap. But that not normal, right? It's right now, I don't know what is normal, but you know, <laughs> nothing. Yeah, nothing's nothing normal nowadays. Normal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, you, you touched on a word earlier on in the conversation about alternative assets. I want to dig into this. And I have my own understanding, and, and like we were talking about, our own, my own filter about alternative assets. But I want to get your take on it. What qualifies? What, what would you consider an alternative asset? And um, what your experience has been with them? How, you, how your results have been, I suppose? Yeah, that's actually a great question. So um, alternative assets, um, most people call alternative assets things like hedge funds or private equity or venture capital. That's how Wall Street refers to them. Or they refer to them as a, a mutual fund that has a alternative strategy. So they might do some hedging, probably not, but they, they come up with some tweak to call it alternatives because they can market alternatives to people because that's what people want to hear about. I don't call any of those alternatives. I just call them different strategies to manage the same old assets that everyone else is investing in. Alternatives, I consider true alternatives are things that are not securities. They're outside of the stock market. Things like real estate, tax liens, uh, private company stock, um, you know, hard money lending, fishing rights, horses, Bitcoin, gold, anything that's not a security is, in my opinion, an, uh, an alternative asset. Now, we've actually created a, a big list of alternatives. There's 75 alternatives, which I'll, I'll, I'll put as a free report for the guests, um, of these different strategies that we've learned along the way. And there's so many more that I don't even have on the list that are, to me, amazing. And I've found them because a lot of our clients are investing in these things themselves and they're experts in this area. So it allows us to really learn about these cool things and really expand our knowledge base. So, you know, some of these are really, really hard to get into. I'll give you a good example of uh, motion picture film tax credits. If you're not familiar with this- Motion picture- Yeah, like movie, movie tax credits, basically. Okay, so interesting. Basically, what happens is um, a number of states have provided tax credits. Uh, Massachusetts, where I'm from, is actually a big one. If you'll notice, a lot of the uh, action movies in the last, I don't know, five, 10 years have been in Massachusetts. If you live here, you know the scenery. Um, because Massachusetts has a very hefty tax credit for uh, movie companies. And offhand, I forget what it is. I think it's like up to a million dollars. So if the movie spends a million dollars, in on the city, right? Spending it, doing whatever, paying people for jobs or buying stuff at stores. If they spend a million dollars, they will get a million dollars of tax credits. So they're basically getting all of that stuff for free. So they're getting their money back. Um, so what these film companies will do is they'll just say, well, you know, I don't need 
these tax credits for whatever reason, for whatever tax reason. So I'm going to sell them. So people will buy them because they need a tax credit, right? For whatever reason, they need a tax credit and they will pay, you know, a discount for, for the, um, the, the movies companies will sell it at a discount to investors. So you you can make a good return with virtually no risk. The risk is that the state's going to default on the tax credits or that they're done wrong, you know, when when they're exchanged. But effectively, big insurance companies, finance companies buy these things because they need the tax credits. If you're in that business and it's a very small, small community, so it's really, really hard to break into, but it is a great cash cow for people that are in it. I know people that are in it. Um, I'm not talking about investing in movies, very different business model. I don't recommend sure. that. That is that is a loser's game, unless you want to have your name in lights that you're pretty much paying whatever you invest, quote unquote, investing in a movie. You're basically paying for your name in lights because you're not getting that money back. But tax credits are different. Um, and the movie industry is one of those things that if you don't know anything about it, don't get into it because it's, it's complex and it's built to cause people to lose money. But it is a really interesting area if you know what you're doing that I found to be fascinating. Um, so it's an example, like tax liens are another one. That's my favorite asset class. Um, but there's there's all these alternatives that are not in the stock market. You never hear about them and they're not correlated to public investments. So if the stock market goes down 30%, so what? I mean, have rental property prices dropped 30%? Nope. Have people stopped paying rents? Maybe. Yeah, they kind of have. <laughs> but um, <laughs> this year, they, this have, year but... they have. But, you know, in any other recession, not necessarily. Um, you know, motion picture films, well, they're doing fewer of those now, but it doesn't affect the tax credits. So, you know, they're not necessarily correlated to a stock market crash or a recession. Some things are, some things aren't. Tax liens, no correlation there, or very little, if any. So if you look at alternatives, you're able, let me take a step back. One of the original thinking behind modern portfolio theory, which is what everybody in Wall Street subscribes to, that's diversify, reduce your risk, all of that. That's modern portfolio theory is what it's called. And the theory of it was diversify with low to no correlation or even inverse correlated assets, and through that, you're going to get a lower risk portfolio that is going to be an easier ride. That is effectively what they tried to create. Now, that is making a very, very big assumption that you're able to find low or no correlation or inverse correlation assets. In the 80s and 90s, you could do that. You can't do that now. And that's the piece that everyone's missing is they think, well, this still works. What are you talking about? This guy's an idiot. Why modern portfolio theory? Everybody talks about it. It used to work. It doesn't work anymore because I've been doing this research for the last 20 years and I'm shocked that no one else has published this. The research states that, and this is the funny part, um, Wall Street is what correlates the assets. You heard it first here. Wall Street is what correlates the assets. So we have done research on a lot of alternative assets. Timberland, managed futures, private equity, hedge funds, all these different asset classes, farmland. We've done the research. They are not, Timberland's a perfect example. 2001, I read an article. Timberland REITs have a correlation of negative 0.01. Now, one 
is a perfect correlation. So if you invest in the S&P, if you have an asset that has a correlation of one, you're pretty much investing in the S&P. You're getting the same upside, same downside. A negative 0.01 basically means that the S&P could go down 100% and this thing might not budge at all, or it might even go up, who knows. It, so the point is, is the correlation, what you're trying to find are assets that aren't correlated to each other. That's the theory behind modern portfolio theory is finding a bunch of different assets that aren't related to each other. So if one goes up or down, this one doesn't react to that. That used to happen on Wall Street. Now it doesn't happen anymore because what's happened in Wall Street is there's too much money floating around, which I'm sure your listeners will agree with. You know, our Federal Reserve prints up a lot of money and there's a lot of money floating around. It has nowhere to go. So what happens? These big institutions have to put it somewhere. They're not investing in bonds because they're getting 0% interest rate in bonds. So what do they do? Oh, let's go buy some real estate. Now you've got this huge pile of money that's moving from one place over here. And if you don't think it's going to move the market, you're kidding yourself because you've got trillions of dollars moving into Timberland REITs now, let's say hypothetically. Now, all of a sudden, that money is going to operate similar to Wall Street's money into the indexes. Because what happens is when the markets go up, people dump a bunch of money in. When the markets go down, they pull all their money out. The same thing happens with institutions. So if they're investing in Timberland, they're going to pull all their money out because they need it. Because you know somebody's selling their FANG stocks and they don't want to sell it in the mutual fund. So they're going to sell these Timberland REITs. So everything gets correlated. And that's the problem with Wall Street nowadays that didn't happen back then. And it's what I call the contagion effect. So this correlation happened over from 2000 to today in a bunch of different alternative assets. So what used to be non-correlated is now correlated. So you're not getting the diversification that should have happened and that you expect to happen. And for whatever reason, Wall Street has not figured this out. I don't understand why, don't care, because I'm not worried about other people, I'm worried about my clients and people I know. If they wanna screw around, that's up to them. But my point is, is that at the end of the day, what we're really focused on is finding non-correlated assets that can keep our clients safe if we're going to diversify using modern portfolio theory. Well, we saw it even in March when gold went down as well. Like gold should have gone straight up or should have. I'm, I'm going to yeah, say this slightly sarca sarcastically, but it's like, no, what happened? The markets went terribly down. People got slaughtered. They needed to make margin. And what did they have that was stable? Well, they sold their gold. Well, when everybody starts selling something that's stable, well, it also starts to go down. So then it, it just trailed right behind, right down the toilet. And then people saw that gold was cheap. They started piling back in and it went straight back up. But it's like it was that cushion that we needed in the space. And I think that a lot of other things will show that even when it's not supposed to be correlated, it is. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember March very well. I mean, we were not exposed to the down downdraft, but I was watching assets to, for buying opportunities. And one that was interesting to me was silver. And silver is one of those interesting things. It's a precious metal, but it's also an industrial metal. So as a precious metal, I started to watch it and how it was operating with gold, right? So if you watched gold, gold, you know, it dropped and went from, you know, uh, just looking at it here, it went from pretty much right around uh, 1650, somewhere in that range down to like 1460, uh, somewhere in that range. So about 200 point drop, not 
not that bad compared to other things. Then you look at silver. I mean, silver, just looking at the at the ETF, it, it, it went from somewhere around like 17, uh, high 16. Like 1250 No, it actually ticked down to 1080. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I missed that day. I get, I get my gold and silver reports literally every morning. I didn't see it go that low. I think that was intraday. It, it was it was on the ETF, so that's maybe not a good indication. But uh, yeah, the low was 1086. So, um, you know, you see stuff like that. And I remember that time because I was looking at it thinking, uh, what could go wrong here? <laughs> Buying yeah. silver at this price. <laughs> so we actually bought a position with an option strategy, which pretty much at the time... Um, it, 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 the worst case scenario is we would have had to buy silver at like $10. So it was like, for us, it was like a no brainer. Um, but you know, really you kind of look at scenarios like that and you think, all right, at the time silver was not operating as a precious metal is operating as an industrial metal. And that was the freaky thing because silver actually has been had been going sideways for a long time, even though gold had already gone into a bull market. And so I was I was watching silver closely because silver is like gold on steroids. And you know I looked at it and I'm like I can't invest in silver. It's operating like an industrial metal, and I don't want to touch it when it's doing that. I want to wait till people are treating it as a precious metal, and then it's it's going to you know like mid year when it went from like 16 bucks up to like 26 bucks in a matter of like a month. Um, like that's the time when you want to own silver. So, um, you know, it, it's assets like that. I mean, I love uh, precious metals as an asset, but I'm not a gold bug. And what I mean by that is um, you need to be flexible in your thinking. You need to be agile. It's kind of like, uh, and you know, all my friends are gold bugs, so don't take this the wrong way because I know there's a lot of people in the audience who are. Um, yep, absolutely. We, we, there's a lot of gold people in this podcast, but yeah, don't worry. I don't think you're going to offend anybody. So Yeah, and for reference, I own gold. So if you, know, you want to know where I stand, I own gold myself. But, um, but the way I look at it, and I'm using gold as an example because your audience is going to understand this. There are times to own gold and there are times where you don't need to own it. I'm not saying you'd have to sell it, because there's many, many reasons to own gold. And let's be frank about that. Gold is a chaos hedge. Uh, it is a hedge against inflation. It's a hedge against chaos. There's a lot of reasons to own gold. But there are also times where you don't need to own it. So let's just say, hypothetically, you wanted 20% of your portfolio in gold. Let's say today, seeing that gold's still you know, in a bullish sort of market, it still has a bullish trend. So let's say you wanted 20% allocation. This is a hypothetical allocation. It's not what I recommend. Um, let's say it's 20%. Okay, let's say 10% of that is a permanent holding, that you are never going to sell this holding. That is a permanent thing you're going to keep in your basement mm -hmm. under lock and key yeah. or whatever. Your bedrock. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is your permanent holding. That's okay. That is something that it's like owning real estate. You're going to keep it. You have a reason for holding it. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. I totally agree with that. That's what I do. Um, but then the other 10% is uh, more flexible. So the flexible part is when do you own it and when do you don't own it? So we owned it through the early part of the decade. And when, when it started to go into a bear market, we sold. We didn't own it anymore. We actually used options to take advantage of the market going into a bear market. So we were able to hedge some of the exposure that people had so they didn't have to lose a lot of money when it when it dropped. But then gold kind of flatlined for a while. It didn't go anywhere. And, um, 
you know, now it's kind of going back into a bull market. And the point is, is you don't, so like take 2016 to 2018, 19, or till the beginning of 2019, gold pretty much didn't go anywhere. You basically lost three years of time by sitting on it. So you didn't need to own that extra 10% during that time. That's something you could have either used a trading strategy, you could have invested in something else, but because it didn't go anywhere, you lost your opportunity cost for investing in other places. So my point is there are times where you might not put that extra 10 in. You might have it in now because gold is still in a bull market. You might have it in now, but the point is you need to be agile in your thinking so that you're not tied to your thesis that gold is always a good strategy. Well, look at people in real estate when they said, oh, real estate always goes up. It's always a good deal. It's always, they're not making any more land. And it's like, how many times has that proved not to be the case? And people just got slaughtered in real estate. That's that's a, that's a perfect example. And, and I heard that so many times from people that I would tell like in the, in the mid 2000s when I had clients they're like, oh, I'm gonna invest, I'm gonna take my money out and invest in real estate. I said, you do realize that we're in a bubble, right? Like, why are you going to take your money out and put it in, in the top of the bubble? That just seems silly. And their answer was always the same. Real estate always goes up. We can't get hurt in real estate. And oddly enough, it has been 12 years and I'm hearing the same thing. People are afraid of the stock market. Oh, the stock market's too expensive. I'm gonna put my money in real estate. Great, what are you gonna do when the bubble pops? I mean, real estate's in a bubble too. It's not even real estate. It's every asset's in a bubble. Everything's expensive. So I'm not saying you shouldn't own real estate. I'm just saying like, you don't just blindly put your money in because you're sick of the stock market. You have to look at it and say, if it's a good deal, like if you're investing, hoping it makes more, more appreciation next year, you probably shouldn't be a real estate investor. If you're investing for the cash flow and you're getting good cash flow, then yeah, it might be a good deal. I always look at real estate as cash flow first. If you're investing for the cash flow, then you really can't get hurt. If you're investing for capital appreciation, that's where you, people get, get kind of screwed because you can't predict the future. You can reasonably predict cash flow. You cannot reasonably predict real estate appreciation. Just you have no idea, right? Like I, I could. So do dividends kind of fall into that same type of mindset for you? Because if we, you know, go back a little bit in our conversation and talk about these lo like long lasting legacy companies, these blue chips with the dividend aristocrats and things like that, um, that do cash flow. Do you feel similar way that you do with uh, income generating real estate properties? Um, it's a good question. Uh, yes and no. I think yes from the standpoint that um, over time, things tend to there's there's a lot of research that's been done that over time, the dividend aristocrats or, or, or um, I call them legacy stocks. Uh, they're stocks that consistently pay out dividends, consistently raise dividends, and consistently buy back shares. Um, statistically speaking, that has proven to, to outperform the index, um, at least from the studies that have happened. And I tend to agree that those tend to be better quality companies. And it's even better if they're closely held companies. So they're not, you know, most of the shares are owned by the owners, not, you know, not just Wall Street. Um, so there's a lot of science that's gone into the quality companies. So if you want to buy quality companies, then that's the way to do it. Um, the problem with that is there'll be times like this year where these companies cut their dividend because they have to. 
And if we go on for another year or two of COVID, which may very well happen, then you're going to get more companies cutting their dividends. And this is the this gets back into that agile mindset is when you buy things assuming that they're you're making an assumption that things aren't going to change, that's where you get in trouble. Because if your assumption is these big companies have been paying dividends for 20, 30, 40 years and they're not going to stop now, if you're assuming that's going to that that's not going to change, you're deluding yourself. Because it can happen, and it has happened this year. So you have to, and this is one of the things that, um, you know, what happened in the BP oil spill, um, you know, back, I forget what year it was, 15, I think it was, where um, they end up cutting their dividend. Well, I mean, it's a UK company and UK pensioners are relying on that dividend. They're, you know, like they're going to, they're going to be eating, you know, cat food because they're relying on that dividend and they cut the dividend. So there's this big back and forth at the time I remember with the UK government and the US government about cutting the dividend because a lot of, you know, retirees would have gotten hosed. So, you know, the point is is yes, people use that strategy, but you're you're owning an equity, so you're subsequent to the risk of that equity of potentially cash flows getting cut. And you might say, well, let's take a consumer goods company. Well, people are never going to stop buying goods. Yeah, but they might buy fewer goods or COVID might happen. Like, I mean, you don't know. And the point is you need to be flexible in your thinking. You need to be aware of the fact that these things can happen. And if they do happen, you need to have an alternative strategy because, you know, if you lose 30% of your money, in a stock and you just say, well, I'm going to buy and hold. And then, oh, by the way, they're cutting their dividend to, you know, from like 5% down to 1%. Now the stock's going to go down even further. And then now you can't get out of it. So that's the problem with those situations. People just say, well, it'll come back or this will happen. Um, so you have to make one of the key points. If you, if you guys take nothing else away, the key point is, you have to have agile, flexible thinking when it comes to investing. You have to be committed to your strategy, but be aware that your strategy is not infallible and that you have to be able to adjust according with market conditions or the economy or whatever is changing. I love it. Brilliant. Kirk, thank you so much. Super interesting conversation about risk mitigation and alternative assets and how this all fits in with a resilient strategy. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? Yeah, so the best place to find me, I've got a few places. I'm on all the social medias. Um, I'm really easy to find there. The best place to find me is if you go to moneytreepodcast.com. That's the podcast that I run. I do that every week and you can listen to that as well. Uh, MoneyTreePodcast.com. You can also go to our company's website, which is InnovativeWealth.com. And I write all the blog posts there so you can learn about all the interesting things that we're talking about. Uh, and lastly, as I referenced earlier, there's a... Um, a report that I'm going to offer all, all Mikkel's listeners, which is at innovativewealth.com forward slash expat money. And that'll be the big list of alternative investments. Uh, the idea of that is to really just give you ideas and to spark um, conversations so you can start thinking about ways to also invest outside the market. Perfect. I love it. Thank you so much, Kirk. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Thanks for having me on, Mikkel. I just wanted to mention to you about my book, 
Expat Secrets, How to Pay Zero Taxes, Live Overseas, and Make Giant Piles of Money. Now, I wrote this book almost four years ago, and it became a number one bestseller. And just recently, four years on, it has become a number one bestseller again. So there are a lot of people out there who are getting a lot of value from this book. And I get comments literally every day how this book has changed their lives. So I'm really excited to have done this. And I want you, if you haven't already, to go out there and pick up a copy. It is completely evergreen. The knowledge and the things that I share in it are timeless. Okay, there might be one or two programs that have changed with immigration, but the concept, the ideas, the mentality of being an expat and how all of these pieces fit together for the offshore markets, it is still applicable. So if you go to Amazon and search my name, Mikkel Thorpe, or Expat Secrets, it should come up at the very, very first. Otherwise, if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you should see some links on my website that will redirect you to Amazon in your region to pick up the book. So Expat Secrets, if you haven't had a chance to read it, then I suggest you do now. Support the show. All the money goes back into the podcast to produce this content for you. So I appreciate the support. And if you want to be a really cool human being, do me a favor and leave a review for the book. I really appreciate it. It really helps new authors like me to sustain and pay for all of this type of stuff. So your support is definitely welcome. That's it. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Talk soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com.